Dangers of Eclecticism on this edition of Truth and Love. I'm Dale Johnson, and you're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, where we seek to provide biblical solutions for the problems that people face. And in our final segment of Mental Health Awareness Month, uh, releasing on this final day of May, we want to tackle a couple of things. Uh, Sam is here with me again, Sam Stevens, our Director of Training Center Certification here at ACBC. Many of you know him and know him well. I'm so grateful for the friend that he is to me, but also the the support that he is in the in the office. He just does tremendous work keeping people organized and going. And I float ideas, and Sam puts them in an organizational fashion on paper, and we make it sing together. And so I appreciate that, Sam. And, and so we're going to finish up today. We, we've been talking about this article that came out in the Harvard review of psychiatry back in 2020. And it's interesting because now you have, man, a myriad of seculars starting to recognize some of the difficulties with biological psychiatry. And we're going to continue that discussion, but then take it a little bit further so we can see how this this sort of comes to land where we are. And and it is important. And this is only one aspect, what we're talking about today, what, what what we're calling eclecticism. Let me see if I can make this train, Sam, if I can do this. In how we get from our discussion about biological psychiatry, the misrepresentations of literature that describe these problems of mental health, these problems of of mental disorders, if you will, the the dangers that we see consistently with the biological narrative, its detriment of reductionism, right? Not looking at the the entirety of humanity, but sort of seeing the primacy of biology over all things and having that as a singular cause of these labels that we give, most people would would hear the labels, for example, of major depressive disorder or generalized anxiety disorder. And the immediate thing they think of are, are not primarily environmental pressures. They typically think, well, I have some sort of disease of my brain. And this is what the article in Harvard Review of Psychiatry is, is trying to demonstrate, that, that these things have not been demonstrated very clearly. And that's a false narrative. And it's unfortunate that you know, mass media takes some initial research that's done in a very hypothetical way with not even substantiated evidences and gives clickbait for people to read. And, and it, that's how things continue to flourish. This narrative continues to flourish. But an interesting thing that happens, and, and most people don't realize this, Sam, is that you've, you have sort of this war that's happening. We've mentioned this on the podcast before between psychiatry and psychology. Most people sort of like lump all that together. And I get it to some degree. They, they, they both sort of adhere to the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. But psychology historically has really been a promotion of what we would call counseling psychologies, right? Or, or psychotherapies, okay? And, and those are what we would call talk therapies, where we're going to sit down and we're going to chat. Most people think about Freud's couch, or they think about sitting in an appointment with Rogers, Carl Rogers, and doing this person-centered sort of client-centered therapy. That's your your talk therapies. And and so what's interesting about the, the biological narrative is as science begins to demonstrate that it's not as reliable as people had once hoped, it's not making the the biological connections, the, the demonstrating the causes that are supposed, people are responding. They're saying we have to get rid of this criteria-based medicine. It, it's not flourishing in the way that we had hoped. So much so that you can go read about the National Institute of Mental Health even now, how they've taken out 
a, a ton of funding and support in this direction saying like, we're going down dead end roads, spending all this money and we have to do something different. And I find that like extremely interesting that, that they would make decisions like that. All that to say, we, we see again, and, and history is full of this back and forth between psychology as a talk therapy and then psychiatry wanting to explain in some sort of, you know, reductionistic biological explanation of the problems that we have. It's had this super strange unintended consequence, okay? And, and that's what I want to talk about today because I, I want to make the train, if we can, to how it affects biblical counseling to some degree. And listen, this is just one. We could seriously take several months on this subject and, and, and start to demonstrate to you the ways that this biological narrative ha has affected us specifically in biblical counseling. One of those ways is what we're calling eclecticism. Now, how do we get here from biological psychiatry? Well, as people respond to this issue of biological psychiatry and they say, oh, this is reductionistic, you know, there's no way that we can take, you know, th these scientific studies that, that uh, give correlations and make them causes. We, we have to do something different. And so we're seeing literature that, that is saying just that. And so how are people responding? Well, basically what they're doing is they're saying, okay, the biopsychosocial model Okay, which was grounded in the 1970s, 1980s, and has flourished in psychiatry and psychology uh, since, where, oh, we're getting too far in this biological uh, reductionistic sort of mentality and how we look at human problems. So, so we want to build this, as we've talked about in this article the past month, multi-causal explanations of these problems. So bio, psycho, social. And essentially what they're doing is they're deducing man into three basic categories. And some Christian integrationists would also add a fourth category of spiritual. The pro there's a problem with that. Sam, I want you to talk for just a second about if we divide man that way, what's the implication relative to the Bible? The Bible says something different about anthropology. Talk for a second about biopsychosocial model, which by the way is being critiqued in a major way in the last decade. But, but I want you to understand it first, and then we'll see some of the implications and, and how that fleshes down to us and how people are responding to that criticism. So, Sam, if you will, just take a second and explain biopsychosocial and how that divides man uh, in an unnecessary and, and unbiblical way. Sure. I think the implication here is the partnership of what we would identify or what has been identified in the past as the helping professions. Uh, so you, you get similar implications in thinking about man in a tripartite uh, uh, aspect so that, that were made up of, yes, body, the material, but also a division of soul and spirit. And the way this has traditionally been viewed in the past is that each of these compartmentalized aspects of man uh, have a different uh, um, representative of the helping professions that can speak to that very particular compartment of man. And the way that's traditionally been seen is the, uh, the, the, the medical professions, the traditional medical professions for the body, we wouldn't have any big argument there, right? Broken body and people who can uh, mend bones and, and flesh and the material part of man. Uh, but the soul and spirit's been a lot more controversial. The spiritual aspect has been said to be the compartment of man that the minister, the gospel proclaimer, the pastor speaks to. But the soulish aspect would belong to the psychologist or, in this case, the psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. And so in my, in my dissertation research, I focused on pastoral psychologist, a self-proclaimed pastoral psychologist named Wayne Oates. He taught at Southern Seminary for, for several decades. 
And this was very much his approach to soul care. Uh, it was a, an eclectic approach uh, on, on two fronts, one being that we need to understand man in this divided anthropology, uh, that, yeah, there's an aspect that's totally legitimate for us to minister the scriptures to, but there are other problems that people face that are linked to these various compartments, and that is the territory completely for the other helping professions. So in his outworking of pastoral counseling, for example, he saw that it was his role as a faithful minister of the gospel to come in and play one part of many. And so the implication here is that the scriptures may speak to some of our problems, but there are other aspects that it does not speak to. I think this is a problem on two fronts. Most clearly anthropology, nowhere in the scriptures do we see this idea of man being compartmentalized and divided in such a way that you've got a team of helpers that speak to very different parts of man that really don't ever don't ever overlap or speak to each other. That's very foreign to definitely the Hebrew idea of anthropology that we see in the Old Testament, but New Testament as well. That, that's just a foreign idea. But also, I think it goes into two things that you, you may speak to. Uh, one is uh, a metaphysical outlook. I know we're getting kind of philosophical mm-hmm. here, but this idea that uh, there are many uh, there are many different worldviews, but all of these worldviews really do cor- correspond and correlate just fine. There's no, you know, there's the naturalistic worldview, there's the spiritual worldview, but eh, they, they really can work together and correspond just fine. There's this this idea, pluralism, and then an idea of pragmatism. And these both feed into eclecticism. So, okay, all these different worldviews, yeah, there's many different ones. They all have different ideas of, of, of our reality and where we fit into it, but they all really fit together, no problem. And then pragmatism. Hey, truth is really grounded in a utilitarian aspect, right? Whatever works, whatever helps, however we define that, that is true. And so when these two things come into play, which I think they work really well with this divided anthropology, so now all three aspects, anthropology, metaphysics, our view of reality, and even our idea of truth and pragmatism, all of these feed into the method of eclecticism. Mm-hmm. And now there are many tools. There are many legitimate tools. If, you, if our listeners have listened to our last two podcasts on biological psychiatry, something shouldn't make sense to you. Mm-hmm. If if mental disorders are rooted in biology, how does talk therapy help? Mm-hmm. Right? It just doesn't make sense. If I have a, a biomedical disease, I can talk until I'm blue in the face. It's not going to resolve an organic issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so if if emotional or behavioral problems are rooted in organic cause, how is talk therapy of any sort? Mm-hmm. And there are over 500 psychotherapies mm-hmm. out there, probably more than that. How is that going to address a, a, an organic monocausal explanation of mental disorders? Mm-hmm. It just doesn't make sense. So that idiosyncrasy, how is that explained? It's explained this way. Mm-hmm. We'll divide up man into many compartments. We'll redefine truth. Will allow different worldviews to speak into it, and it becomes kind of a, a hot pot, if you will, mm-hmm. of, of approaches and methods. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and the seeds really of the biopsychosocial model were were born early in integrationist in in 1935. Uh, we see Anton Boysen creating clinical pastoral education. That's exactly what he was doing. Yes. He, he's just saying, yeah, the psychiatric ward's not helpful to me as helpful to me. And so I, I need some sort of spiritual advice along with this physical care. And, and the, the idea of the CPE model, clinical pastoral education, was born where we have a team of influencers, right? The, the pastor, he, he's less influential, but the doctor and the psychologist slash psychiatrist, and they're all on this team of care and they all have sort of their own domains and their own responsibilities. And what's happened over time, and, and that was prominent in 1935, beginning 
really back into the, the previous decade, but but prominent then in 1935. This was taught primarily at seminaries. This was born out in the modern pastoral care movement starting in the 1940s, moving forward. And this was sort of the approach. The pragmatic approach is not wanting to dismiss, quote unquote, science and this burgeoning of psychotherapeutic approaches and so on. And they, they wanted to incorporate this. And that's making a statement. It's making a statement about the Bible and about the relationship of church to care for people that it's insufficient. And that, that in my view, becomes problematic. But, but those things reigned, okay, in, in the middle, early middle part of and latter part of the, the 20th century until where we are uh, now talking about biopsychosocial. And we see this same type of movement happening as a response to biological psychiatry. And so you see this ebb and flow. Should we do talk therapy or should we not? What's interesting is in the last decade, we've seen so many questions about biological psychiatry that now all the psychologists are saying, yeah, that's what we've been saying. Like our talk therapy gives equal outcomes to some degree on, on some of these issues. So how can these things be organic to your point, right? And so it begins to raise some of these problematic questions. Okay, so what do we do? Well, what we have to do then is, is each section of man has its own domain. And we say, well, okay, that, that's your domain. We don't want to like cross over into that. We want to deal with our domain. But when you're dealing with that part of humanity, like the biological part, well, that may be true, but, but the way I think about it is also true. Okay, demonstrated, as you just mentioned, with over 500 different types of talk therapeutic approaches. Uh, what does that say about counseling psychology? Well, first, a, a novice observer would recognize that uh, that's confusion. <laughs> there's, no, there's no semblance of one streamline of truth. We like some of the things the previous guy said, but we want to alter a little bit because it doesn't fit completely our worldview. So we're going to create a whole new system of approach in how we're going to help people. And eclecticism begins to be born. I was asked one time, Sam, you and I teach at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary Biblical Counseling. I, I had some students. I was teaching through this process about secular psychology and how it was developed and how it came to be and the three forces of psychology. Some of you have taken intro to psychology. You're familiar with this. Um, you have you know, your, your psychoanalytic approach or what was called psychodynamic approach to therapy. This was Freud, right? Is um, the, the id, the ego, the superego, the, the whole iceberg idea of the conscious and the subconscious and, and, and where your problems lie in psychosexual stages of development and so on and so forth. Then you had a sort of a movement away from that where people started to imbibe the, the naturalism of Darwinian thinking even more. And it landed on behaviorism. That's sort of the second force. The second more like primary approach is we're no more than just sophisticated animals. And uh, we respond instinctually. So if we want to fix people, we just need to uh, train them in some way with positive and negative reinforcement and so on. And then we get to a third development, humanistic psychology, which is, you know, your Rogerian, Maslowian type approach of uh, uh, man is actually good, inherently so, and we need to help him become better, self-improvement, and all the rest of it, right? And as I was teaching this, one of my students said, you know, Dr. Johnson, you've taught us about the three forces of psychology. Where are we at now? What's a fourth force? And so, like, I paused for a minute, and I'm curious, not knowing exactly what to say. I've never that's been asked rare. That. <laughs> yeah, never, yeah, that's true. <laughs> never been asked that question before, and, and, and I, as I pause, I begin to think about what I see happening in the secular world. What, what we see happening in the secular world is not a reduction of theories and therapies, actually a massive increase. Um, you know, one therapy comes in vogue for a certain type of, you know, treatment of a person. 
And then over time, it goes out of vogue because it wasn't as reputable as people thought. The outcomes were not as great as people thought. And there's something that's now in vogue that replaces it. And, and, and so goes the war, right? So um, I began to think, okay, this is really interesting. And you look at some of the, even the textbooks of intro to psychology or, or counseling theory from a secular perspective, and that's sort of how they approach it. They'll talk about, you know, your, your um, 10 or 15 major theories that have been really dominant and sort of set the stage for other theories in the past. And then it's sort of a conclusion. Gerald Corey is one of the leading guys who's written several intro to psych books, very popular secular guy. That If you take an intro to psych class, you, you might read a Gerald Corey book. And his conclusion in his books, the way he deals with it is, is sort of an eclectic approach. He just says, well, like, we love these things about this theory, but we don't like these things about this theory. And so let's just incorporate the things that we think are helpful. And it's sort of the, building this, like, toolbox mentality as a counselor is, oh, well, I, you know, if I'm dealing with trauma, I need this in my toolbox because I think pragmatically it's the best approach to dealing with that person because this is what's at play here, right? This biological aspect or this psychological problem. And so we're going to use some sort of approach that we think is appropriate. You see what happens? It begins to evade truth as something that we're, as people called to conform to, and it begins to disseminate a multiplicity of truths with its own authority in a particular domain, our, our biology, our psyche, or some sort of spiritual aspect of humanity. And it builds this idea of eclecticism. So my response was, man, we, we are really moving into this era of like eclecticism, is we're not wanting to decry any one particular theory as if it's you know totally missed the boat. We want to so, sort of like pragmatically pick and choose what we think is most helpful, right? And here's the thing that I see happening, and we ask the question, Sam, like, how is this, how is this impacting us, okay? Because this is definitely, the, the eclecticism idea is definitely happening in the, in the secular world, but it's also happening in, in Christian integration. And this is really what has happened over a long period of time, you know, the integration's argument to say, you know, well, there are some helpful things, never clearly defining, like, how we arrive at those, those ideas of what's helpful. And I think it's inf really important to emphasize this. They never do. Mm -hmm. There's there's a broad assumption that that integrating these opposing worldviews, these systems of thinking, and, and if you've listened to any of our podcasts, especially this month, you see uh, they are grounded in a very very different worldview, right? So there's this the general assumption that integration is possible and that it should happen. Mm -hmm. uh, but so what's given uh, in many of these, and I've read many many integration books. I'm reading a fairly new one right now because I just want to see what's going on in in, in that field. It's the assumption that, yeah, it should happen, it can happen, and so they're just talking about doing it. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, uh, you know, I, I want to challenge our listeners, you need to be thinking about those types of things. Mm -hmm. Is it even possible? Mm -hmm. And even if it is, which I would argue it's not, should we do it? Mm -hmm. And that's an ethical question, mm -hmm. right? But to your point, what gives way? It's biblical fidelity. Mm -hmm. That happens every time, because this is human nature. Yep. Uh, the truth of the Scriptures conform to what we think is right. Mm -hmm. So I always ask my students, my students ask legitimate question, what helps? What should we be doing in counseling? What works? But I always wanted to find for them, we need to define what helping and working is. And we need to make sure those definitions come from the scriptures mm -hmm. and not just what we think is the newest fad in clinical effectiveness. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, again, you mentioned clinical pastoral education. That was, that was very much what it was about. There were good motives there, 
but they became very, very man-centered. In fact, Anton Boysen himself, uh, his whole philosophy was living human documents. What was the sole source of the content of his whole approach to, to care? It was the individual person's perceived needs mm-hmm. and uh, and those type of very pragmatic efforts of, of again, pursuing what is true. Mm-hmm. You know, very utilitarian. Yeah, that's right. But I mean, as we talk about this category of integrationist, is uh, they are sort of built to be very susceptible to eclecticism. And eclecticism doesn't doesn't uphold truth as a primary issue, right? Because if we're willing to sort of adopt different pieces and parts, really, you know, the, the approach of pragmatism, we value the scriptures, so we want to incorporate them as best as we can. But he, here's what we see, and, and I want you to talk to this, because, I mean, you're, you're reading uh, this book, as you mentioned, and there are several others that are out there. But, but what you see happen, particularly among integrationists, is they're not like, I'll give you an example. So when I, when I was coming through, I did a bachelor's degree in psychology. And if you wanted to pursue um, something in the field of psychology or psychiatry, you did a master's that was very specialized in a particular area. If you wanted to be a, you know, psychodynamic therapist, you would, you would go and train particularly for that role. If you want to be a cognitive behavioral therapist, that's exactly what you went and trained to do. Now it is seemingly more of a, more of a, an eclectic approach is we, we want to give you lots of tools in the toolbox so that you can handle different issues. Integration seems to be continually moving in this direction where you have some integrationists who, who propagate and are who known for implementing cognitive behavioral therapy or EMDR therapy, for example, or some other therapy, depending upon what they're specializing in, whether it be trauma or emotional issues or, or whatever the case might be. And so we see this this constant just adapting and adopting eclectically different types of therapies or different types of approaches, techniques, methodologies, systems that can't be separated from the the whole worldview system, the secular worldview system itself. And this is a part of what has expanded, if you will, integration approach to, to problems. That's right. In fact, the the text that I'm reading right now actually wants to couch the whole practice of integration no longer as a building of a particular model, but as conversation. And so the emphasis is on existential experience, human experience. It's on creating space for embracing healthy self-concept. And I think a lot of that is the natural outflow of embracing an eclectic approach to method and counseling, Mm -hmm. where in early, early years, especially in the history of integration, there was an emphasis on building models, and many of these guys, too, were committed to a particular, uh, at least branch of a, a major psychotherapeutic approach, so like cognitive behavioral therapy or mm-hmm. something like that. But now it is very broad. Much of that is lessened, and it becomes much broader. And again, you see a watering down of the the aims of counseling, and it becomes this very hard to pin down and define mm-hmm. pursuit. Mm-hmm. And now, again, it's all process. and. and this is kind of repeating in history, too. You see mm-hmm. this. And, and again, modern pastoral psychology, it's all coming around full circle. And I think it also pairs very well with just our cultural milieu right now. Now, that's that's exactly where I want to go, Sam, is what we saw unfold in the literature in the 1940s, for example, in the modern pastoral care movement, guys like Seward Hiltner and later in, in Caps and, and what you see unfolding in some of their literature it is exactly what we see unfolding today. Here's the sad part, at least in my opinion, is we, I would expect to see this in, in your integrationist theory and your integrationists in their approach. Uh, that's certainly true. And it makes sense to me, right, that, that they would do that because that's sort of their philosophical approach. What I'm sad to say is I see this happening in the biblical counseling movement. 
And I think those of you who are attuned to what's going on in the biblical counseling movement, you, you can see some of this unfolding and happening right now. And, and that ultimately, it makes me sad. Now, I want to caveat this because I want to explore it a little bit more. But we see in the biblical counseling movement some of the same language, that, that, that we're some sort of spiritual guide on a team uh, to approach um, how to help a person to be healthy, that sort of thing. I think that is very dangerous language. And, and listen, this is not hypothetical. We know how that ends because we saw it arise in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And we know what it's done to the church relation uh, in relation to discipleship and care. It's divorced us from it. And so this is what makes me nervous is we see eclecticism going from the secularist and we follow the pattern in the Christian world in integrationism. And then also now we see it happening uh, to some degree in, in those who are claiming to be biblical counselors. Now, I want to make very clear that this is not a statement against science. Okay, I'm going to go all the way back to Dr. Adams, and I want to make sure we clarify uh, this particular issue about science, because for far too long, biblical counselors have been labeled as anti-science. That's unfortunate because it's not true. Uh, from the beginning, the new movement was made very clear by Dr. Adams, and, and this, this is what he said. I'm going to quote directly. I do not wish to disregard science but rather welcome it as a useful adjunct for the purposes of illustrating, filling in generalizations with specifics, and challenging wrong interpretations of Scripture, thereby forcing the student to restudy what he believed to be the ultimate truth, which was Scripture. I echo completely Dr. Adams's uh, approach there regarding science. It, it is to be revered, to be respected, to be acknowledged, but science as science, as what it intended to be, in helping us to understand a little bit more about the created world in those things that can be verified and retested and and um, and demonstrated. So I wanted to, to, to caution us here because I think it's important. But let's let's explore this idea just briefly. I know we're going a little bit long today, but I, this is an important issue to me that I, I continue to see sort of unfolding where we feel, I don't know if it's academic respectability, where we fear not not fitting in with a broader culture, but I see this influence of the secular world, and we begin to adopt it for some reason. Maybe it's an issue we feel uncomfortable with, so we sort of default to what's being said in the secular culture right now related to things like abuse or whatever the case might be. And we see this adoption of eclecticism, this language of, well, I, I, you know, these methodologies have been super helpful to help people in trauma or help people in, you know, um, you know, OCD or, or whatever the case might be, and so. And if they're helpful, that's pragmatism. And and we say we want to we want to go adopt those methodologies and those techniques and incorporate those into biblical counseling. Well, those things give you a faulty aim. They don't give you primarily a spiritual aim, and they're they're resting on a different authority, not the Scripture. And, and so this is my big problem: is we're beginning to some degree, and as a result of this whole mental health confusion that we've been talking about all month is we're seeing this affect us in a lot of ways, and we have to make that connection. One of the ways we're seeing it affect is, is people are saying, well, I just want to be like more broadly educated, and, and that's all fine, but you have to do it with a discerning heart from the Scriptures, right? I'm for education. I mean, I, I pursued it to the highest level that, that you can. Uh, I'm not against it, but you have to do it with a discerning mind, not just simply trying to incorporate everything you learn into what ought to be practiced. In fact, Sometimes the things we learn, we have to discern between good and evil as it relates to the scriptures. Mm -hmm. And so this approach just saying like, I got this toolbox, right? And I'm just going to fill this toolbox up with all these different 
eclectic approaches, thinking that now this adds to my significance, my ability to be respected even outside the biblical counseling movement. This is a word of caution, I think, that we have to be very careful about in what we're willing to adopt, what we're willing to practice, what we're willing to promote, that all the while, if we're not careful what's happening, and again, this is not an experiment. We've seen this happen in the middle of the 20th century. If we're not careful, we see what what is harmed most is our fidelity to Scripture. And Scripture is no longer seen as, right. as that which um, is the only thing the Word says will not fade away. Right. It will last forever, and now it becomes questioned as if, is it sufficient truly mm-hmm. to deal with the problems that, that we're facing? And, and I would just add to that, as and again, history has proven this to be true. Mm-hmm. As methods diversify, the goals become compromised. This, this, this happens. Um, and I see this in integration literature. Uh, what's what's actually even happened in the language instead of Christian counseling, it's turned into some sort of vague spirituality. In fact, the book that I'm reading right now, again, published in 2020, the integrationists speak of counseling Buddhists. Mm. And the Buddhist clients tell them, I've got questions about life and worldview. And you know what the integrationist says? These are really interesting questions. These are difficult questions to to answer. And you know what I write in the margin, Dale? Because you know I write in my margins. I was like, this is not a difficult question to answer. Mm-hmm. The answer is Jesus. Mm-hmm. The answer is Christ. We need Him. Yep. Buddhism is not going to save you. <laughs> and and so what's happened is uh, there's a reimagining of theology. Right? We use the theological terms, mm-hmm. but we've reimagined them, and now we're rethinking them to, again, create space for conversation. It just, it all devolves in there. It opens the door for progressive Christianity. This has been the story. Mm-hmm. I would encourage, I don't, I'm not a big self-promoter, but I do want to encourage anyone interested in this topic. Dale and I have both written about this in SBC context in particular. You should read our books, but we talk about how this is actually fleshed out in real life. And you see the impacts in in pastoral counseling specifically. But again, history does repeat itself. If we diversify the methods, we move into this eclecticism, we assume that we have all the foresight and knowledge to choose between what's right and wrong and all these secular theories and always 100% of the time use them accurately without fault, uh, we're fooling ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that will lead to a compromised goal. The, the goal of counseling will change drastically from what it should be. Yeah, and there's a lot more. We, we've gone way over time, but, but this is a very important topic. We will, on the podcast in the future, talk more about this subject because I, I do think it's one that, that needs our attention. I think it's one that, that needs careful thinking. I'm not saying that we have it all figured out. That's certainly not the case. Uh, but but it is one that, that I find intriguing, and we have to be cautious about, right? It's okay that the secular world wants to do that. That's, that's their business. But when it starts to encroach upon the way we think about Christianity, the way we think about human beings, um, biblical anthropology, and how we help people who are struggling, uh, it becomes a problem. And we need to be very, very cautious about our approach of eclecticism. It makes us feel better that we have tools that we can use with at, at our beck and call that, that we think will help people to some degree. And this doesn't mean that, you know, I don't seek in any way possible to help relieve pressure on someone. That, that, that's not what I'm saying. But when we approach life from this eclectic perspective, it has a, a devolving aspect of the way that we see humanity and certainly the way that we see the value of Scripture and its sufficiency. You're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of ACBC. 
Thanks for hanging on today. We talked about this issue of eclecticism, which is incredibly important. And I, I see it sort of growing uh, by leaps and bounds. Now, listen, I'm all for us growing in the biblical counseling movement. We cannot rely just on past work. We cannot do that. Absolutely. God has given us all a task in this present moment to carry the baton faithfully, to grow our understanding of Scripture, to grow in our understanding of people and how we relate to people, how people are hurting and how we can best help them by the Scripture. But we have to be cautious in the ways in which we move forward. Uh, progression does all not always mean progress. When we expand something, a movement, for example, it does not always mean true legitimate progress, especially as it relates to spiritual things, because our tendency is to um, is to walk away from um, the biblical context just because we're fallen humans. And so we need to be cautious and careful. I, I don't want you to take that as fear-mongering. Please don't do that. But I just want us to be vigilant. We are called to be discerning, uh, and, and I want us all to grow in that together. My goodness, you know, when I'm dead and gone, they're going to critique some of the things uh, that, that Sam and I have said, and and that's okay. Uh, we we are not all wise and all knowing, and uh, we're growing in this process as well. But the Lord has given us wisdom from the Scriptures to be able to see some things that we should be cautious about, and I want us to just grow in our discernment. So, for counselors, as you guys approach wanting to help people, make sure that. Any approach that you you come to, make sure you're discerning uh, its methods, its system from the scriptures. I cannot stress that enough uh, to, to be cautious. Now, one thing I want to let you guys know of, particularly for our members, and this is a special thing that we've been doing now uh, for nearly two years, uh, where we've been offering member webinars. Again, we want to raise the value of membership, and one is coming up June 10th. Today is May 31st, June the 10th, uh, Dr. Nick Ellen will be with us and he will be giving a live webinar that you can access. You should receive an email, a special invitation. Don't you feel special? An invitation that you can register. We need you to register so we know how many will be there. And, and then Nick will present and you'll have an opportunity to live Q&A with him uh, on the subject. He's going to talk about encouragement from a couple of different angles in the counseling room that I think you'll find very, very helpful. So for you members, Make sure that you register, take care of that, and be with us on June the 10th. That will happen at 6.30 uh, Central Standard Time. So make sure that you're there live if possible. If not, it will be available to members on your member portal after that session on June 10th. But I encourage you to be with us live. You can ask questions, and that's a great thing. So to find out about our member-only webinars or the myriad of other resources that we have, uh, visit us at biblicalcounseling.com.